Good morning. I want to start with the big idea for today. Here it is. Our unwavering and full-hearted service to the Lord will strengthen our heavenly hope. That is, the more we love God and love others, the deeper, the more profound will be our anticipation of glory, of seeing God make everything right, and then our spending eternity with Him and with His saints. Last week, we began a study into the book of 1 Thessalonians. We covered the first chapter last week. Today, we're going to look in the second. Second Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians is one of the easiest books in the Bible to read and understand. If you've never read it, if you've never read it entirely in one sitting, I highly encourage you to do so. It would only take about 10 or 15 minutes. Moms of preschoolers, I realize it's going to be another 10 years before you have a free 10 minutes. But most of the rest of us can sit down and read it in just a few moments. What you, we will see in 1 Thessalonians 2 is a, that it gives us a very good look into the heart, into the mind of the Apostle Paul. You can't read this chapter and not begin to feel at least some of the emotion that he brings to the issue he's going to talk about today. Last week we saw in Acts chapter 17 how this church was started. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had gone there. And by the grace of God, people began to get saved, Jews and non-Jews. But suddenly, the ministry in Thessalonica was brought to a full stop. Paul and his fellow evangelists were forced to leave at night. They were there one day, gone the next, weren't even able to explain their absence to anyone. In that absence, Paul's critics, especially the other Jews, some of the other Jews in the area, as well as some of the other Gentiles, unbelievers, they began to capitalize on this opportunity to, to put Paul down, to cause the young Thessalonian believers to have doubts in what he said and what he did and why he did it. And you know, it does seem like the the worst spin on things is the easiest one to believe, isn't it? Except maybe if you work in Washington. But for most of us, bad news seems to sound true, truer than good news. We're going to look at that a little bit. It also helps us to know that at this time in Greece, there were traveling philosophers and others who would come into a city they would kind of gather a crowd, charge them money to keep hearing him, and then, whether he was saying anything good or not, true or not, at some point, people might begin to catch on. All he would have to do is scoot out to the next town. Well, that's what people were saying that Paul had done, that he had kind of used up all his credibility, and now he had to leave. In fact, he left at night. 
How shameful. That should show you, these critics said, should show you how distrustful Paul and his words were. Well, now, after that time, about a year has passed, and Paul and Silas had not returned to Thessalonica. Paul and Silas were the major missionaries on this trip. Timothy went along, but he definitely took a lower role. And sadly, some of the Thessalonians were really taking to heart some of the criticisms. And why wouldn't they? They weren't getting any news from Paul or Silas. You know, in our day and age, we take instant communication for granted. It's hard to transport ourselves back and to realize news only traveled as fast as a person walked or maybe ran. Where Paul and Silas first went was to Athens, some 300 miles away. So you can see that news getting back to the Thessalonians would have been slow and, and most likely garbled by the time they got back. Paul, therefore, writes 1 Thessalonians, and in chapter 2, he defends his ministry. He tries to explain to them why he did what he did and why that was all a good thing to be doing. In providing this defense, he focused on three explanations. First, he reminded them about his conduct and his motives while he had been with them. Second, he explained how ferocious the persecution and opposition had been, what he had faced, and that that was why he still was unable to return to Thessalonica. Thirdly, he assured them that as soon as he could, as soon as circumstances allowed, he would come back and see them. Looking at chapter 2 in a broad sense, it breaks that breaks down into two parts. The first 16 verses highlight for us an explanation and a defense of Paul's past actions in Thessalonica. Remember, when he's, reading, when he's writing this, it's been about a year since he was last there. So he gives a defense and an explanation of what they did while they were here. Then in verses 17 through 20, he clarifies why he's been unable to visit. He also makes sure that they realize that is probably his greatest desire is to come back and see them. So I want to read through this chapter for you, and I realize it's human nature as we read, especially a first time, something that's not so familiar with us. It's easy to want to read for content. Again, that's just natural. But I want to ask you to try to just focus or at least primarily listen for a few words and phrases I'm about to point out. First, you know. Secondly, the word brothers. And thirdly, we're going to see a, several occasions where there is a not this, but that kind of construction. So why does Paul say, you know? He doesn't do it sarcastically. He does it to remind them that everything he's saying is true. How, why, how do they know it's true? Because they saw all these same things. They remembered Paul and Silas and how they administered, how they preached, what they said, how they lived. Why does he use brothers? 
Because brothers is a family word, isn't it? It shows them that Paul's not superior to them. He doesn't regard himself as being over them. No, they are his brothers. He's one of them. And third, why a not this but that pattern, which is just a relationship construction, we'll see that it shows the relationship between two ideas. All this is going to make sense when we look through it. And in fact, all of these actually appear in the very first verse. So I invite you to follow along on the slides or in your own copy of the Word of God. Right from the start, he says, For you yourselves know, you know, brothers, that our coming to you, our visit, was not in vain. But, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from an error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never, here's another kind of a not, but construction, but this time he's going to use never and nor, nor. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. He's calling God as a witness to what he just said. It's not at all common for Paul to do that. In fact, it's pretty rare. And there's only one book in which he calls for God to be a witness twice. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But, the nor, never nor, nor, but, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves. Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, again, a you know statement. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you as we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Verse 10. You are witnesses. You know. And God also. First Thessalonians is the only book that calls God as a witness twice. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from among your countrymen, your own countrymen, as they did 
from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Verse 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, not uh, in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? And the answer is yes, for you are our glory and joy. First 16 verses of these 20, Paul explains and defends his past actions. First thing he says is that their, their ministry during when they were at Thessalonica was done in purity and in righteousness. Point A, they preached boldly in the face of persecution. We just read that, but I'll pick up in verse 2 near the end. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul says that when they came, they had a purpose. They didn't come emptily. They didn't come just to shoot the breeze. They came to present the gospel to the Thessalonians, even in spite of anticipating that they would probably be persecuted for doing so. And in fact, they were persecuted for doing so. Well, why does Paul say this right at the start? He does so because no one will suffer for a lie. They went through all kinds of suffering for proclaiming the gospel to them. And in essence, this is a huge affirmation of the genuineness and truthfulness of the gospel. Because Paul said, we knew we would pay the price for coming. We knew we would get hurt for speaking out. We did it anyway. So Paul's assuring them right from the start that what he is saying, what he had passed along to them was God's truth, and that's why they prayed for and received courage from God to keep on preaching the gospel, no matter what the circumstances might be. Letter B, they functioned as stewards, Paul tells us, or managers, maybe even fiduciaries of the gospel, knowing that God would examine both their ministry and their motives. Function is probably not the best word. Maybe they operated as stewards. They lived and ministered as managers. Not as independent contractors who could do their own thing. Not as owner-operators. But as people who had been entrusted by God with his truth. And we'll see that in verse 3. It says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In verse 5 and 6, For we never came with words of flattering, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. 
Nor did we seek glory or fame from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. One of the most important things I want you to see today is what Paul clarified there. That God is always testing our heart. He knows our heart. And in fact, that word tests is in the present tense. So the idea is that God continues to look at our hearts and evaluate them. Now that ought to bring every one of us a whole lot of humility. But it also ought to embolden us to desire to please God. Just as Paul said, their desire was to please God. God had entrusted them with the gospel, and one day they and we, by extension, will give an account to God for how we have managed, how we have utilized His gospel. Have we sat on it? Have we kept it with we four and no more? Or have we utilized it the way He wants us to, which is to share that great news with other people so that they too can have salvation? Let her see like a mother, like a nursing mother, gently and tenderly cares for her children. So they deeply love the Thessalonian believers. You can see that in verses 7, 8, and 9. It says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Can you imagine anything more tender than the gentleness and tenderness a mother gives toward her baby as she's, as she's feeding and taking care of it. So verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9, For you remember, there it is again, brothers, our labor and toil, how we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel. Paul tells us they delighted to share the gospel just as much as a nursing mother delights to feed her children and to give of herself to her children. And Paul says they were affectionately desirous toward the Thessalonian believers. It's a way of saying we greatly cared for you. We, we enjoyed spending time with you. We loved it. He said they, they had become very dear. The Thessalonians had become very dear to Paul and Silas and Timothy. And on behalf of the church office staff, the deacons, elders, I want to take this opportunity on behalf of all of us to say, we love you. We really do. We enjoy your company. We're not perfectly gentle toward you all the time. We're very aware of our own shortcomings. And certainly some of you could add to the pile. You point out things we don't see in ourselves. Certainly sometimes we fail to show you that you are loved, that you are very dear to us. But in spite of our imperfections, we love you. We really do.
Letter D, the next point. Like a father, they nurtured, that is, they instructed and encouraged the Thessalonian believers. Like a father. Verses 10 through 12 are not technically a command, but more so an example where Paul says, it's normal for fathers to do this, therefore we did it as well. We learned, gentlemen, from Deuteronomy. We see it in Proverbs, in Ephesians, and here in 1 Thessalonians, that men, fathers, your children's spiritual instruction and encouragement is on your shoulders. It is your primary responsibility. Yes, you can include their mother, and I hope that's always possible. You can partner with a Christian school or a church's children's ministry or youth ministry. But gentlemen, from the beginning of the day until its end, we carry, we bear the primary responsibility for the instruction and the encouragement of our children. Other people may help, but no one, no one can take away your responsibility. And if your kids are already out of the house, then dad, and hopefully mom, but at least dad, be their prayer partner, their prayer warrior. Don't assume others will help you out on that. Maybe they will, but even if they do, other people's prayers on behalf of your family can never replace your own. I'll read these verses, starting with 10. It says, You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted, and he's going to give three verbs here, we exhorted, we encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To walk in a manner worthy of God is simply to live in light of who God is. To love him with all your heart. To love others as yourselves. To put his agenda first and foremost in our lives. First, 16 verses deal with Paul's defense and explanation of why they did what they did among the Thessalonians. The latter part of that shows or tells us that the Thessalonians, what did they do when they heard Paul's message? They responded by the grace of God. They responded in spite of severe persecution. So in verse 13, he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. We talked last week some about thanking God for believers. Here is another instance in which Paul models giving thanks to God for people who have responded to his grace and mercy. Verse 14, For you brothers became imitators of the church of God 
in Christ Jesus that are in Judea for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And before I read these next two verses, I want to make it clear. These two verses do not give us any right or even encouragement to persecute Jewish people of today. It's hideous how they have been and continue to be maligned and, and belittled in so many ways and so many places. I saw something recently where uh, at a particular <clears throat> excuse me, university that people who were heads of various groups in that university had gotten together and they decided to outlaw among themselves to not allow any Jewish speaker to ever come on that campus, no matter what his or her topic was. Crazy. But as believers, yes, we should love them, shouldn't we? We should pray for them because that's what Paul did. I'll point that out in a second. Verse 15, it says, The Jews of his time killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul gives thanks that they accepted the word of Paul as being the word of God and that they responded to it in spite of and in the midst of great suffering. Paul prayed for the Jews. He yearned for them to come to salvation. I invite you to just write this reference down. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. I'll read them. Brothers, Paul is speaking, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay, that's the first 16 verses. The last four, we're going to see that Paul now explains and defends why he's been absent from them, why he has not returned to see them. Verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. By the way, that word, or those two words, torn away, that is the Greek word from which we get the word orphan. In fact, to put it into English, Paul could say, we were orphanized. But what's interesting, Paul didn't say, y'all, you Thessalonians, were missing us. Certainly they were. But Paul says, we felt abandoned. We loved you so much. We enjoyed so much being with you that being away from you really hurts. It profoundly saddens them. So he says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, wanted to again and again, but Satan hindered us. 
verse 19 and 20. I'll go ahead and read those. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at its coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. If you look back at verse 17, you see that Paul didn't simply say he had a desire to see the people face to face. He said he had a great desire to see them face to face. But he didn't just say that because he said he eagerly and with great desire wanted to see them. But not just that. More eagerly and with great desire that he wants to see them. You can't even, even I can't miss what Paul is saying here. That only blockages by Satan or God not giving permission, only that would keep him away from revisiting these Thessalonians. So he says in verses 19 and 20, that basically, as he looks forward to heaven, as he looks forward to the return of Christ, these people are giving him a great joy, and he's going to have, that's the idea of being the crown and joy for them, of them. But he is going to, he's saying also, he's going to have a great joy in heaven when he, if you will, looks over and sees the Thessalonians. Because not because of what he did. Yes, he, he witnessed. Yes, he preached. Yes, he suffered. But his boasting will be in the Lord because it's God's grace that saves. And it's God's grace that energizes us to work for him. So Paul, in essence, is saying that our unwavering and full-hearted service to the Lord, just as he modeled, will strengthen our heavenly hope, will strengthen our confident expectation of seeing the Lord and of rejoicing in his presence. I have finished this by putting several applications down at the bottom. Invite you to turn to those and read those on your own. And again, not just today, but maybe keep that in your Bible and allow it to be a, a bit of a heart test for you as you serve in whatever way, but also as you live your Christian life. Let's not, from the model of Paul, let's not shrink back from suffering for the gospel. Let's speak up boldly. Let's work to please God, not people. And you can read the rest. <clears throat> As we devote ourselves with God's help to following Paul, just as he followed Christ, our labors in this life will not be in vain. In fact, they will help produce fruit that will exist for all eternity. Shall we pray? Our Father, we've had the example of Paul presented to us, how he gave great attention and great focus to ministering in ways that would please you. And Father, that's what I pray for us all as we walk out of here. 
whatever venue we, we may be in, whatever life circumstances we find ourselves, help us, God, to have no greater desire than to please you. Lord, we entirely need your grace and help to be able to do so. We humbly ask for it as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.